Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I'll be your host for this episode. This is the 25th episode, which is pretty exciting for a couple reasons. One, it's going to be the third installment of the Flyover Country series in which I speak about a case either in Minnesota or around Minnesota. In this case, is actually going to be coming out of North Dakota. Um, also, it's going to be a slightly shorter episode. There's not as much information out there as I thought there would be about this ep- episode. And I'm trying to get this recorded and edited out and published before uh, the crazy soccer weekend kicks off here where I've got the first of 9 to 12 soccer games my boys are involved in uh, kicking off this weekend. So, uh, if, as always, if you'd like to get updates about the, what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crimes Productions Facebook page. We're rapidly approaching a 1,000 followers on the page, and that is awesome. Appreciate you guys checking that out and liking and following the page. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. And if you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any and all donations help ensure that I can keep making free podcasts in the future. And for no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to. And without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. The Red River of the North has always been a historic waterway. Technically, it reaches from the middle of Minnesota to the Atlantic Ocean via Lake Winnipeg, Hudson Bay, and the Labrador Sea. It's a relatively young river at only 10,000 years old, formed from the melting glaciers at the end of the last ice age. Native Americans followed herds of bison and other game into the fertile floodplain shortly after the river formed. French fur trappers arrived in the border area of North Dakota and Minnesota in the mid-18th century. The area was home to the Ojibwe tribes, and after the United States acquired the land in 1818, settlers and Native Americans clashed over the land for 50 years. Already an important trading post, Grand Forks, North Dakota, which is named this as it's situated at the meeting point of the Red River and the Red Lake River, grew even larger in 1880 when the Great Northern Railroad arrived in town. Three years later, in 1883, the University of North Dakota was established. Technically, this was jumping the gun, as North Dakota wouldn't even be recognized as a state until 1889, but the combined draw of the river, the railroad, and the school established Grand Forks as a mecca for trade and settlement in the region. Today, the city is the third largest in North Dakota, with a recognized 59,000 people living living in it year-round. The city gains an additional 14,000 students each school year, and the school is best known for its hockey program, which produces several NHL-caliber players each year and has won the national championship eight times. The university has all the feel of a bigger campus, but without any of the cost or hassles of living in a major metropolitan area. It's only a four to five hour drive, for at least most of the year, away from the twin cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. This is a big appeal for students from Minnesota that are looking to get away from home for the college experience, but still be close enough to drive home for some home cooking and laundry a couple times a month. In 2000, one of those bright-eyed freshman students was an 18-year-old woman from Pequot Lakes, Minnesota. Pequot Lakes is a small town three hours north of the Twin Cities, but it's still a 3.5-hour drive from Pequot Lakes to Grand Forks due to there not being a direct interstate route between the cities. 
This bright-eyed freshman would embrace her university experience and stay incredibly busy with sorority life, volunteering, working two jobs, and carrying a full academic schedule. But on a cold November afternoon in 2003, evil was on the prowl, and soon many people would be out looking for this young woman and the monster responsible for her disappearance. Her name was Drew Sedin, born on September 26, 1981 in Minneapolis, Minnesota, to parents Alan Sedin and Linda Walker. At age 10, she moved with her mother, brother, and stepfather to Whitefish Lake in north-central Minnesota. Whitefish Lake is part of a chain of lakes called the, the Whitefish Chain that are located just north of the cities of Brainerd and Baxter in an area often referred to as the start of cabin country in northern Minnesota. The area is scattered with many of the 10,000 lakes that give Minnesota its nickname, and the area is filled with lush forests and the smell of pine. Drew was always known to be an active girl, and in high school she was an athlete, honor student, homecoming queen, and a lover of art, especially sketching. She also loved to travel, and the University of North Dakota boasts a very successful aviation program. She was able to land an internship in the program, and by 2003, Drew, now a senior, was living her best life. Having met him five months earlier, Drew's boyfriend was a 32-year-old graphic designer named Chris Lang. In the days before remote work for jobs like his, he had established himself in the Minneapolis area. Their relationship, although young, was strong, and they navigated the distance by calling each other. It was a Saturday afternoon in Grand Forks, and Drew had just finished her shift at Victoria's Secret at the Columbia Mall. While walking to her car around 4 p.m., she called Chris to tell him about a deal she got on a new purse. Then about four minutes into her call, her story suddenly stopped, and she said the words, okay, okay, and then the phone call ended. Drew didn't sound alarmed, and Chris thought it was just bad cell reception. After all, this was 2003, and dropped calls were common, especially in remote locations. Then, at 7.42 p.m., Chris got another call from Drew's phone. Expecting to hear her voice, he, was, he instead heard static and what sounded like buttons on the phone being pressed for 20 seconds, and then the phone call stopped. Chris called Drew's roommate, Meg Murphy, who relayed to Chris that she hadn't seen Drew, which was strange, but Drew did have a shift at her second job that started at 9 p.m. It's possible they thought that she had made plans between the jobs and was just having phone issues. But when her second job called Meg to see why Drew hadn't shown up for work, the fear for both Meg and Chris hit an all-time high. Her doing a no-call, no-show to work and the lack of communication was not like Drew at all. Meg contacted UND police and they began a missing persons investigation. UND police would go through Drew's room looking for any clues as to where she may have gone. In most missing persons cases, police are starting from ground zero in terms of information on the person they are looking for. They have to try and either confirm or eliminate different scenarios in order to best utilize their resources. Many things will be looked at with the most common being suicide, some form of getaway, or a more permanent attempt to disappear. A potential suicide case is hard to eliminate as not all suicide victims leave notes or clues behind but a history of past suicide attempts, a family history of suicide, mental emotional well-being issues, and recent loss around the time of the disappearance will all be taken into account when a note of intent is not left behind. The quick getaway is is more applicable when someone is having an affair or some form of tryst and runs off to escape whatever is going on in their current life. They may be gone for a day or a week or a month, but will usually leave behind a lot of clues and or slip up and use a bank credit card. 
The more permanent disappearance is usually someone trying to race an old life and start a new one. Someone faces a large amount of jail time or fines from criminal civil charges or somebody escaping an abusive situation would all be examples. Another example would be someone who just wants to live a new life. And we'll take a pause here from the story and talk about some of the stuff we just covered here. So I'm not saying that all missing persons cases are going to be seen under the same light because clearly in this case there was some form of interrupted conversation that at the time probably didn't seem like much but when she then doesn't show up for her second job and nobody's heard from her it's going to raise some more red flags what i'm saying is when somebody goes missing and in this case it can be a teenager it can be a college-aged student it can be an, uh, an adult it can be a 50 year old male or female what i'm saying is that when police first arrive they don't often know exactly what they have all they know is that they're being told this person that that family or friends can't get a hold of this person and they're not where they're supposed to be they're not in their house they're not at their job they're not at school whatever it may be and because stranger abductions and abductions themselves are just so rare it's most likely going to be one of those categories that i brought up before the person's almost always voluntarily going missing and it's for a reason and that's what the police have to figure out sometimes it's suicide sometimes it's you know a kid running away to because he doesn't like mom and dad's rules or he wants to go live with his girlfriend in another state or whatever it may be and sometimes it's a case like christopher mccandless who the story into the wild is about who decides to just up and leave his life take on a new identity try to you know live off whatever he can make in terms of cash and and leave no footprint behind there are people like that and so it's not always the case that when somebody goes missing that they've been abducted or that they're missing against their will. But police have to figure that out. They have to go through the investigative process. And as I've said before, unless this person is well known to police, this may be the first police report contact that police have ever had. And in the case of college towns, every four years, roughly, new students are coming in with completely new backgrounds, completely new you know, emotional experiences, whatever it may be. And then they're leaving after three or four or five years. And so it's, it's going to be difficult from the get-go in a missing persons report just to get that baseline of what do we actually have here. And again, in this case, you have a little bit more because you have this interrupted phone call or dropped phone call, whatever it is. But as I mentioned, it's 2003. This is 20 years ago. Uh, Cell phone towers were not as strong and, and prevalent as they are now. She is in a more popular or populous, I should say, part of town in with the mall nearby it's not like she's out at a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere but still any of any of us that had cell phones back in 2003 knew that it would be very common a to have phone calls where the person's voice is just cutting in and out because you don't have a good connection and b calls it just would randomly drop you'd be talking to somebody and 30 seconds later you realize they're not there anymore so this isn't going to raise any alarms at first and and 
her boyfriend would actually say later on too that even when she said the okay okay before the phone call ended she didn't sound like she was alarmed in any way it wasn't something where he was thinking something bad just happened to drew because if if he did if he truly felt like that was something bad had happened he wouldn't have waited until he got the second phone call to contact the roommate and they would they wouldn't have decided to wait until she doesn't show up for work before they contact the police uh, you know there's and I did see some articles said that it was at four o'clock that she left her shift. Other articles said five o'clock. So again, we kind of run into this. I don't know which one's accurate. One are, one says one and one says the other. But we're just going to go with the fact that this is you know the afternoon and her other job was nine o'clock. So it's not like they waited two or three days. It was this short window of a few hours where they're kind of deciding again. Maybe her phone died. Maybe she had. She's, she's in college maybe she had some studying to do between jobs and just didn't have a chance to call and say anything or inform anybody because her phone was dead so a lot of thoughts are going on the last thought in their mind is that she's been abducted but police are going to again launch an investigation they're not going to treat it as she can just do whatever she wants and and disappear thankfully they're going to get involved very quickly and start asking questions with those closest to her. So after talking with family and friends, police are gonna look for any clues that would indicate any of the previous men mentioned scenarios are in play. And in extreme cases, digital forensics can be used to try and locate Google searches for destinations, tickets purchased, receipts, etc. We'll get into the phone stuff later because now phones more than ever are gonna be used, but I'm absent being able to ping somebody's phone and find the location. This is all the stuff that's going to be going on behind the scenes in a missing persons case where foul play is suspected or it just doesn't seem right that this person is missing. So if you've got a you know 15 or 16 year old kid that runs off, these are some of the things that can be done. They can look at the the computer and, and try to find the history and see if the kid looked up you know driving directions from here to Arkansas and or if they can get a hold of the phone company and, and get some of that information all of that kind of stuff is very valuable information for the police during this this investigation take all that out let's get into phones in today's world the most common way to try and find someone is to ping their phone we almost never go anywhere without it and it's always on so unless you're trying to hide or someone is trying to make it hard to find you a phone ping can give police a general idea of your location. And then some other less common ways to locate people electronically are with vehicle GPS monitoring systems like OnStar, phone apps like Snapchat, and there, there's other apps out there too. And this comes back to there's apps such as Snapchat where people want their location known and they'll have it marked in there that this is where I am. And then there's most of these apps they'll also have features that can be turned off so that you know people can't find you if they're not looking so again it'll depend it would depend too if the person's going involuntarily going missing maybe these are some things that might give you some clues if they're voluntarily missing and they don't understand how these things work then that's something to work with but the, the final way is they're just going to go you know knock on doors talk to friends see if they know where know where this person may be 
family and friends, even boyfriends, girlfriends, close friends don't always know everything about somebody. Sometimes by knocking on a, on a door, especially like in a dorm room situation, you might find the one person that they've become close to that nobody realized and that person was given confidential information from the missing person. So again, in a missing person's case, information is the gold. Any information you can find about this person's past, their present, or their future plans will help you potentially locate this missing person. And then as we talked about before, abductions are rare and stranger abductions are even more rare. So unless it's somehow a witnessed abduction, it's not usually going to be the the first thought that police have is that this person was taken against their will. Again, different circumstances can play into that. The fact that she had a dropped phone call right before she went missing would potentially put more weight into that line of thought. But ultimately, again, most of the time when you show up to somebody's house for a missing persons report, the last thing on your mind is the potential that this person was taken off the streets against their will and hauled away by a stranger. Now, in this case, police did not have much to go on. Uh, they, they pretty quickly found out Drew was not suicidal. She had no reason to run away from her life and had not made in, any mention to anyone about going anywhere. And everybody was saying she was too responsible and too level-headed to skip work and ignore calls and texts from her family and friends. So this is where we get into the difference between if somebody goes missing and they live their life by a pretty strict schedule, pretty dependable, reliable, them missing for a three or four hour time period, that's pretty significant. Whereas we talked about in the case of like the superbike murders, when the, the waitress and her husband went missing, they were often in and out of jail. They were going, they were on, you know, drug binges they disappear for weeks at a time a lot of the times when a family member finally does call up and report their their loved one missing it can be weeks months later when they haven't heard from this person and even then the police are at a loss where do you start the investigation when was the last time somebody talked or saw them and so it, it victims can make cases easy on police and they can make things very difficult on police Drew's dependability and punctuality made it very easy for the police to realize that sometime after she left work that day, while walking to her car, something happened, and they were pretty sure at this point that it was foul play. On November 23rd, they found that Drew's phone emitted a signal until 8 p.m. that night when it either was turned off or ran out of battery. And the signal was located to a cell tower near a rest stop along a highway that runs between Grand Forks, North Dakota, and Crookston, Minnesota. And now the way it was written made it difficult to see if they got this information on November 23rd that the night before Drew's phone emitted a signal until 8 p.m. or whether it emitted a signal until 8 p.m. on November 23rd and then was shut off. And this is again where... I was surprised at the lack of information in regards to this actual investigation and the information out there. Because a lot of the times when I find something like this that I'm a little confused about, I'll find another article or two that will clarify it. And in this case, I didn't. 
I have to imagine that that phone call was made to Chris around 7.30, 7.40 when there's buttons being pushed and static on the line, that that was likely the attempt by the suspect to turn the phone off or shut it down somehow. And then at 8 p.m. that night, the phone goes completely dark. So that would fit a timeline better than her phone continued to ping in this area until roughly you know 30 24 hours and 30 minutes after this phone call was made it just made more sense that it would do this 30 minutes after this kind of weird phone call than 24 hours and 30 minutes and as i said police are going to start to realize they've got likely a case of foul play here drew was young athletic and healthy her disappearance didn't make a lot of sense unless someone else had a hand in it and so now investigators are going to start to look at suspects with a history of abduction by force. And due to the small population sample in the area, they came up with a list of only nine suspects. All the suspects had previous charges for abductions and sexual assaults, and only two of them were classified level three, meaning they had a high likelihood to reoffend. These guys would move to the top of their list, and after reading the file of one of the men, he became suspect number one for investigators. So at this point, police have exhausted all potential other explanations for why Drew disappeared and where she might be. So they've basically crossed off all of that, that suicide, that running away, that starting a new life. All of those are out. And as I mentioned, she's healthy, so they're not thinking that she had any type of a medical emergency. I believe it also said in there that just like we talked about in the Annie Lee case, they checked hospitals just in case she did have some type of medical issue and ended up in a hospital. And that would be another reason why nobody could get a hold of her and nobody knew where she was at. So again, they've checked all those boxes. Every scenario possible as to why she's missing is believed to be taken care of except for the she's been taken by somebody against her will so that leads them down this path of looking at who in the area would likely do this and this is where i kind of why i kind of mentioned how quote-unquote small of a population this area is grand forks is basically kind of on an island up there in terms of it's the only reason it exists there is because it was a native american trading post at the point in where the two rivers came together, which then eventually fur traders are going to recognize the importance of using it as a as a trading post or kind of a more permanent area to be settled in. That's going to turn into more permanent a more permanent settlement itself. Railroad comes through, university comes in. But if you look outside of the area of Grand Forks, you actually have Grand Forks on the West Bank, which is North Dakota, East Grand Forks, which is on the other side of the river which is actually minnesota but all in all you're talking about a, a population in that area but then around there until you go south down to fargo or again east kind of crookston is the next quote-unquote decent sized town and it's some distance away and when i say decent sized town it's you know more than ten thousand people i believe and that's but but not not by much so police are going to have instead of having to deal with 
a major metropolitan area where you have millions of people and that's going to equate out to thousands of sex offenders, they're going to be able to take their, let's just say, 75,000 potential suspect pool and they're going to narrow that down to just suspects who are not currently incarcerated but have a history of abduction and sexual assault. That's how they get down to those nine. And then they're going to go, well, some of them are listed at a lower level, less likely to offend, so they can move those out of the, out of the list. And so they get down to these two, and they read up on this one guy and say, we think this is our guy. So who is this guy? Well, Alfonso Rodriguez Jr. was born on February 18, 1953, to a family of migrant workers. Not much is known about his childhood other than that his family often traveled between Texas and Minnesota and settled in the Crookston area in 1963 when Alfonso was 10. So before we get into his crimes, this is very common. Uh, I know it's all over the country, but especially in Minnesota, there's a, a farming season and then kind of a farming production season, if you want to call it that that draws in these migrant workers for, in Minnesota, just four, five, six months out of the year because that's all the amount of time that the climate will cooperate and have a growing season. So there was a lot of families that would come up to Minnesota for the summers, stay here and collect a wage because up here the work would pay a little bit more because it was further away from where everybody else was and then when the growing season and the harvesting and all that kind of stuff was done they'd head back down to Texas to spend the winter down there where they could find migrant work but it just wouldn't pay as much and then they'd repeat that back the next summer so it sounds like Afonso's family is doing this going back and forth between Texas and Minnesota but at some point they settle into the Crookston area and I will say that there are a lot of these towns in West Central Minnesota, Northern Minnesota, Southern Minnesota, kind of outside of the metropolitan areas. Oftentimes, the larger cities that have production plants, uh, there's ones that are for Genio turkeys and green giant vegetable canning. And, and these different types of plants, they attract a large amount of migrant worker population, and that job is year round. So they will, a lot of them, will settle you know come to the area for the summer but eventually find a full-time job and then settle that sounds like what alfonso's family did settling in the crookston area back in 1963. now a lot not a lot is known between the time that he settled in the crookston area although he would later state he did a lot of drugs during his youth and what we do know is that in 1974 he sexually assaulted a woman when she gave him a ride home he's going to get a six-year sentence for this and then shortly after getting out of prison, he tried to abduct another woman by forcing her into his car at knife point. She resisted and he ended up stabbing her, but thankfully she survived. He was giving a, given a 23-year sentence and then released with little to no supervision, despite proving he would likely reoffend if given the chance. And he'd been out of prison for only six months when Drew went missing. So again, we'll talk about, it seems like any time I cover one of these cases where the offender was active in the 70s or 80s we talk about light or lenient sentences i know we've talked about the ogre of the ardennes over in europe how many 
I think it was 11 or 14 young girls that he assaulted, and he got two or three years for it. Uh, talked about what the penalty would have been for the East Area Rapist had he been caught, and had, had he not murdered somebody, where rape would only get you a few months in jail. At least his sentence the second time around, and likely because he used a weapon and almost killed a woman, was longer. But he's proven that between... It was between 1974 and 2003. There's 29 years there, and he's been in jail for roughly 29 of them. And in the the roughly a year that he's out between, in all that time span, he's reoffended the first time, and then now Drew is missing. And this is going to be a theme that's going to come up where we'll talk about afterwards it's just something to think about once police are looking at this guy and they believe you know they have their guy here as standard in investigations police are going to want to talk to their new number one suspect surprisingly he admitted to being in the area near the columbia mall around the time drew went missing but he claimed he was catching up on a movie however the movie he claimed he went to see was not playing on any movie theaters in the area so I don't know how they got him to admit that he was in the area of the Columbia Mall. Sometimes police will pull the, you know, we have cameras in the area, are we going to see you on it, or we have a witness that puts you in the area, because I don't know if we've talked about this or not yet, but police are allowed to lie as long as it doesn't shock the conscience. So you can't tell somebody a lie that's so outrageous that emotionally they can't handle it and that causes them to confess but you can lie and say somebody's talking and they're pointing the finger at you when in fact nobody is because the supreme court has looked at this on on at least one occasion probably multiple and said that an innocent person isn't going to be or isn't likely to have to have this have any effect on them if you're innocent and you know for a fact that you weren't near the mall that day that you were somewhere else and that you have no involvement in the, this case and the police tell you we have you on camera or we have a witness it probably hurts them more than it helps them because you're going to look at it and say they don't have nothing on me because now they're making up lies to try to get me to confess however a guilty person that may be what it takes in order for them to say crap if they have me on camera or somebody's saying i'm there then i better admit that i was there and again i don't know how they got him to do it sometimes you know be nowadays can be hey when we look at your cell phone data what's it going to tell us were you in the area what were you doing there and again i don't know if they did that in 2003 i don't know if they had his cell phone data at that point showing that he was in the area and that his phone was pinging near drew's phone and he just was making up a reason to be in that area but it did state that in multiple articles that he admitted to being in the area of the mall. He was seeing this movie, I think it was like Once Upon a Time in Mexico, but they were able to look and see that that movie wasn't playing any theaters in the Grand Forks area that day. So they knew he was lying. Then they're able to look a little bit closer. They find a receipt for a knife that Alfonso had purchased right before Drew went missing. And they found the knife and a woman's shoe in his car. Both items had blood on them, and the blood would come back to match Drew. 
Alfonso was arrested and sent to jail, where he was held without bond. When the snow finally melted in Crookston, Minnesota, Drew's body was located in a melting snowbank. She had been beaten, sexually assaulted, and then her throat had been cut, and evidence that she had possibly been suffocated was also found. It was likely she wasn't dead when Alfonso left her in the snowbank, but she, it's possible she died from a combination of blood loss and exposure to the elements. Residents of North Dakota and northern Minnesota wanted the death penalty for Afonso, but neither state had the death penalty as an option. Thankfully, the federal government stepped in and took the case. Drew had been kidnapped and taken across state lines, so the U.S. Department of Justice could bring capital murder charges against Alfonso, which they did. The trial took place in summer of 2006, and Alfonso was found guilty of kidnapping resulting in death. The jury recommended that he receive the death penalty. In 2007, he was formally sentenced to death and sent to Indiana to sit on death row. As is almost always the case with death row inmates, a large sum of appeals were filed trying to overturn his conviction and sentence. And in 2021, 14 years after he was sentenced to death, the same judge that sentenced Alfonso to death overturned that sentence. Judge Ralph R. Erickson was now a judge for the Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit, and upon reviewing Alfonso's appeal, he found issues with the testimony of the coroner and felt that Alfonso's mental health was not addressed well enough during the trial and that Alfonso could have tried an insanity defense. Now, this decision only vacated the death sentence, not the conviction. The federal attorney's office announced their intention to reseek the death penalty for Alfonso, but were told to stand down by the U.S. Attorney General in March of 2023. So as of now, Alfonso was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So before we get into Drew's legacy, I just want to talk about some of that stuff and break it down a little bit more. There are still a lot of people that are very upset that this was overturned. Now, I did read some of the reasonings for the being overturned and there's issues with the coroner's testimony and they wouldn't get into specifics of what the details were and even reading trying to find what actually happened to drew is is it's difficult to find it said that she was beaten stabbed they found some like plastic bags underneath some of the I think she was tied up with some ropes, and I thought that she had possibly been trying to suffocate with a plastic bag, but ultimately uh, that her throat was slit, but that she could have lived for some time period before either bleeding out or, or dying from exposure. And I don't say this all to be gruesome or, or gory for no reason. I think it was very difficult for the coroner to establish the actual cause of death and I guess I don't really understand what why this would have a big effect on the case itself and the jury to me it really didn't matter that exactly how he killed Drew it was a pretty slam dunk case that he was responsible for her death so i guess that's my questioning at least in the parts where it referred to the coroner's testimony because i just think the coroner probably had a tough job because the body had been there for i think five months before it was found 
And again, I'm not going to get into, into too much gore or detail here, but the longer that a body is, even one that's out in the cold or in a snowbank, it's going to be exposed to animals. And there's there's a case that I worked and actually ended up being a neighboring jurisdiction, so I, I didn't follow up with it at all. But I had been called in because a, a man's body had been found in this river area between our city and the next one. And he ultimately, I believe, had been missing for approximately two years. And he was found by a guy that was out looking for deer sheds, the antler sheds. And there wasn't much left of the guy. It, he'd been pretty well devoured by we have a lot of coyotes in the area and then even things like mice will uh, and insects and that kind of stuff will take a lot of the flesh away so he didn't have very many bones left that were actually visible Um, and so even in a perfectly preserved situation like being in a snowbank animals are still going to get to people and it's very difficult sometimes for these coroners especially when there's multiple possible ways that somebody died to make an accurate assessment of how that person actually died. So I don't know, again, if it was just bad testimony by the coroner, but we'll leave that behind because I don't know that we'll ever really know the answer to that. And we'll get into what we've gotten into in so many of these cases, and that's the mental health aspect of things. And it's said that Alfonso could have tried an insanity defense and then he suffered from severe PTSD and the federal guidelines for insanity is, and I'll read this verbatim, it is an affirmative defense to a prosecution under any federal statute that at the time of the commission of the acts constituting the offense, the defendant, as a result of a severe mental disease or defect, was unable to appreciate the nature and quality or the wrongfulness of his acts. Mental disease or defect does not otherwise constitute a defense. And the burden of proof, the defendant has the burden of proving the defense of insanity by clear and convincing evidence. And to me, that all falls back on, again, it's able to appreciate the nature and quality of the wrongfulness of his acts. Unless there was a psychological review that somehow was able to say that this guy has no ability to understand that abducting and raping and killing someone is wrong. First off, that should be standard before anybody leaves a prison that is that they've had multiple opportunities over these 23 years to have psychiatric tests and establish a baseline for this person that before being released from jail they have to be mentally capable of controlling their actions you can't just put this person back out into society if you know that they aren't even able to appreciate the nature and quality or the wrongness of his acts i mean if if somebody is that mentally depraved we cannot be releasing them back into society they need to go straight from prison to a secure mental health facility or whatever it may be. So I don't believe, and again, then the defendant has the burden of proving by clear and convincing evidence. Even if the, as we've seen in these cases, even if they say, yes, this guy has PTSD or yes, this guy has you know, schizoid personality disorder, whatever it may be, it's on the defense to prove 
that this mental illness prevented him from understanding right from wrong. And I say understanding right from wrong, that's kind of the the layman's way of saying appreciating the nature and quality or wrongfulness of his acts. It's knowing right from wrong, and in this case, nothing that I read about what he did or anything like that led me to believe that he would not understand that what he did was wrong. And it's so hard to prove that. And I think that's why, though, I mean, if the judge is going to err on the side of caution, he's going to err on the side of caution. And he's going to say there's, there's stuff in place that if you don't agree with my decision, you can re, you know, apply to have his death sentence reinstated. I mean, it's, it's, it's a system of checks and balances. And I think that's the true travesty here, and I'm not going to get into the politics of it, but if a jury finds a guy guilty and needs and they recommend the death sentence, I understand if you have issues with that, how the trial was conducted, and you want to have a resentencing trial where they're able to get psychological experts in there to say whether or not he's fit to be put to death or not, fine, let that happen, but... To have the federal government then come in and say, nope, you can't even retry him for this death penalty case. Just put him in prison. On it, it To me, it, like, it just doesn't speak to justice, at least in this case. And I, I know there's going to be some people that are against the death penalty that are going to say, this is, this is good. He's in life. He, he can't hurt anybody else. He's in prison for the rest of his life now. I mean, he's got to be close he was what, 51 at the time that this happened i believe so he's got to be 71 now so i mean what's the point in in spending taxpayer dollars to put him back on a sentencing trial for uh, to put him to death but i just think overall we have to fix the system we have to make it we have to make it make sense because this has got as as frustrating as it is for people like me looking at it from the outside and doing the research. I can't imagine how it is for the people that were truly affected by by Alfonso's actions. So anyway, that's it's enough soapbox time. We'll get back to um, some of the more positive things that came out of out of what happened. So. As I mentioned, Drew's death sparked outrage in the upper Midwest. At the time of her kidnapping, there were still several holes in the sex offender, sex offender registry system, and those holes were most evident at the federal level. Sex offender registries had been mostly left up to the states to maintain and share, but areas near state borders, like in the case of Grand Forks, could have sex offenders living across the river, and people in North Dakota had no way to know. This changed when on July 27, 2006, President Bush signed the Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act. This, the act included a law named Drew's Law. The law effectively closed the holes in the sex offender registry system, making information on sex offenders' locations public data on the federal level, regardless of state, territory, or tribal boundaries. When I looked at it, one of the main issues was you know, every state could maintain their sex offender databases differently and there wasn't a requirement for them to share that information with other states so sex offenders would just move from one state to another and then it became difficult to not only track them but the new state would then have different requirements 
for the, that information, that data to be out. And so these border states, uh, areas right between two states had a lot of problems where a sex offender could literally move five miles and be in a new state and there'd be all types of new issues with that. And then there's also issues with the fact that Native American reservations were technically, you know, that's tribal land. Not only is it not state land, it's overseen by the federal government. So states really don't have a right to tell members of, in these areas how to operate. So state sex offender registries often had huge holes on anybody that either lived or resided in a Native American reservation, and this act said, no, for the matters of, of sex offenders, it doesn't matter where you live, if you've been deemed a sex offender in state court, federal court, whatever it may be, your information is public no matter where you live. So that that was one of the positives, I guess, that came out of this case. And so again, without getting into the politics, which I will try to avoid on this podcast, the system failed Drew on many levels. Her death was the catalyst that fixed a lot of these issues, but that meant the world lost an amazing woman in order for that to happen. So that's going to wrap up the uh, Drew Sedin case out of North Dakota, the Flyover Country episode, the third one for the podcast. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes, and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. Appreciate you guys listening. Everyone have a great day. Talk to you later. Goodbye.